I am so grateful for a worship team that actually worships and doesn't just perform. That's a tough thing to do, by the way. If you've been to a church and you've been on the worship team, it's not that it's, you know, only wicked people are tempted in this way. There is this temptation, there is this desire to make sure that whatever you're doing on stage looks good to the audience. That's just human nature. And, and a worship team needs to constantly fight against that and say, although, you know, we don't want to be, you know, missing lines and, and forgetting our notes and tripping on the stage, a worship team has to constantly remind ourselves, we're not up here to perform, we're up here to worship. We're just leading the church in worship. And it saddens me when I, when I see services, I watch the service online, I just feel like a lot of folks forget that. It gets so hard, they just stop trying. And I, I appreciate our worship team. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, guys, up here worshiping God for us and with us. And that is a beautiful thing. And I am so happy that I'm a pastor of a church that I believe a team has gotten that right. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to finish up this chapter today looking at verses 11 through 21. Let's begin in verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we were Christians. We don't speak of the terror of God. Only the love of God. Only the mercy of God. Only the grace of God is mentioned. How dare you mention the word terror attached to God? Well, I'm not the one that made this phrase up. I'm reading a phrase written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, directed by God the Father. So, uh... Take it up with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you don't like the fact that there are some terrible things associated with God. Let me explain. We use the word terrible to often refer to bad things. But terror doesn't always mean bad. Terrible doesn't always mean bad. Terrible means uncomfortable, frightful. Terrible means it's going to hurt, but it doesn't mean it's bad. There are some of us who grew up with the terror of a teacher. That teacher wasn't a bad teacher, but you knew that teacher was in charge. Some of us grew up with the terror of a parent. And you know what? There can be a terror attached to a parent when you know the parent loves you and you know the parent uh, wants your best, but there's still a terror of that parent's discipline, the terror of that parent's um, uh, coming home and, and the punishment that would be attached to a wrongdoing. And the same with God. We can have terror of God knowing that if we were unsaved, our destination is hell, and that's a terrible thing. And who is the one that made that decision? God. Now, God made the decision that whoever is not saved will go to hell. That's the decision God made. Why? Because God is just, and God is holy, and God will not, God will not let sin into heaven. And you say, well, Pastor Russ, can I not get to heaven and still be a sinner? Yes, you can, but you got to leave your sin behind. And you say, well, I got that. I'm doing a lot of good works. Look, good works don't erase your sin. You can say to God, God, here I am in heaven. I've got good works and sin. And God says, your good works aren't enough to get you here, and you got too much sin to let, let you in either way. So you say, Pastor Russ, what's the only way to to?" Uh, run from that terror. The only way to not be dragged into the terror of hell. The only way is to be sinless. Well, good luck with that one. No one is born sinless. 
No one will ever attain sinlessness save one, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if you have sin attached to your name, you're not going to heaven. And the terrible truth is this. God has ordained, God has decided, all unsaved, all sinners must go to hell. The only way to eliminate the sin from your name is to call on the name of the sinless one, Jesus Christ. And in faith, ask this perfect Lord and Savior, the sinless Savior, to attach his sinlessness to you. You didn't become sinless because you stopped sinning because that's not going to happen. You didn't become sinless because your good works erased your sinless uh, sinning. That's not practical or theological. You became sinless because you're wearing the sinlessness of Christ. My daughter, Mackenzie, I don't know what the deal is. She loves wearing my sweaters and my coat. She came to school the other day wearing my coat. The coat didn't belong to her. It was mine. But I let her wear it for the day. The sinlessness is not yours. It's Christ's. But he'll let you wear it. Unfortunately for us, and I say this to my sadness, that means there's still sin under that sinlessness. We're still sinners. We still make mistakes. We still make decisions that bring us guilt and shame. But Christ says, don't worry. I've covered you in sinlessness. When God the Father sees you, he sees the coat of sinlessness covering you. And you say, but God, I don't feel it. I feel guilty. I feel like I'm a sinner. And Christ says, because you are. That's why you needed a Savior. (laughs) But don't worry. What God sees is what matters, and he sees my sinlessness. It's a terrible thing to stand before God in your sin. Verse 11, continuing, because of the terror of the Lord, because of the terribleness of hell and the terribleness of where we go when we die for sinners, we persuade men towards God, towards salvation. But we are made manifest or illustrate or show unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciousness, meaning we don't just talk the walk, we walk the walk. We're not just Christians in name, we're Christians in action. We're not just Christians in action, we're Christians in heart. You can just not just hear what we say, you can see what we do, and the two match. That's what that verse is saying. First and foremost, for God's sake, I don't act like a Christian because I want to impress you. I act like a Christian because I want to please God. I am manifesting my faith because of God, his glory, and my love for him. But, but there is a benefit. You do benefit when a Christian manifests their faith in verse 11, their faith, for your conscience. Your conscience is stronger your belief system is stronger when encouraged by the, the showing, the illustration, the sincere belief system of others. It's just human tendency, human nature. When you're the only one in the room acting a certain way, you begin to doubt yourself. Am I the crazy one? When you're the only one that thinks a certain way, you begin to doubt yourself. Am I the one that's wrong? But when you're surrounded by people who are displaying and illustrating and showing the same sincere faith, it encourages your faith. It encourages your conscience. It strengthens your spiritual condition. I don't do it for that. I do it for God. But we do help each other when we illustrate our faith. Verse 12, for we commend not ourselves again to you. All right, same idea. 
I'm not a pastor. I'm not a spiritual leader. I'm not a Christian to prove anything to you but give you occasion to glory on our behalf. I'm not in this ministry for your approval. I'm in this ministry by his command. But my actions hopefully give you reason to say, praise the Lord. And hopefully your actions give me reason to say, praise the Lord. We don't do what we do with uh, looking behind our shoulders. Did everyone see that? Did you catch that? Are you writing that down? Are you, are you marking off the list of things I did today? That's not why we do it. We do it for God, not for each other's approval. I don't need your approval. You don't need my approval. All right, let's get that out of the way. We need the approval of God. But as we gain the approval of God, we are able to glorify God by the actions of one another that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in their parents and not in heart. And essentially, Apostle Paul is saying there are churches around you that claim to love God, but they don't prove it. And he says, your goal is to show them what a Christian really looks like. Those who in appearance look good, those who dress the right way, say the right things, but if you were to follow them around for five minutes, you'd recognize real quick, something's off here. Lots of hypocrisy going on around here. And it is the sincere Christian who ought to show the insincere Christian or unbeliever who acts like they're Christian altogether to show them what Christianity is really like. Verse 13, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. That word beside ourselves, I love that phrase. Your Bible might say the word crazy because that's what it means. Whether we're crazy, it's for God. Now, what does that mean? The Apostle Paul, towards the end of the book of Acts, he stands uh, before a court, and he starts giving the gospel and explaining his theology, and the, the, the leader stands and says, you're beside yourself with much learning. Basically, he's saying, you've learned so much, Paul, you're crazy now, you're loopy. Why do you believe these things? You actually believe there's only one God? I mean, this guy would have believed there was multiple gods. You're crazy to think there's only one. You believe that this one God sent his son to die for you? You're crazy. God doesn't die for us. We die for him. That's what this Roman would have thought. And he thought Paul was crazy for believing otherwise. Now, the world today thinks we're crazy for different reasons. They don't believe in many gods. They believe in no God. And they say, you're crazy for believing in a God. You're crazy for believing this God would come to earth. You're crazy for believing that this God would die for you. You're an idiot. The Apostle Paul says, well, if I'm an idiot, then I'm an idiot for the Lord. If I'm crazy, I'm crazy for God. And he says, or sober, meaning smart, have it together, logical. He says, and for those who think that I do have the truth, that's for their benefit. Those that think I am crazy, then glory to God, I'm suffering for Jesus. And those that think I've got something there, then they'll benefit from that. Let's jump now. As always, I don't read all the verses. We'll read throughout them through the message. Verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And there's the gospel right there. In a nutshell, God made Christ and uh, uh, put him in a physical body and put him on the cross, and he bore sin for sinners who himself, Christ, was without sin. Why? So we also could stand before Christ righteous, not in our own righteousness. We're not putting on our own coat. We are borrowing the coat of our friend and brother, Jesus Christ, 
putting that robe on and standing for it before God with the robe of righteousness provided by Christ. We are wearing that robe, and in his sinlessness, in his righteousness, God says, enter into eternity. The gospel. What does that mean for us from now to then? From now till heaven. Well, it means this, verse 17. If therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that is the title of this morning's message, A New Creation. We are a new creation, a new creature. There are some that would preach that if you're a new creation, you will stop sinning. Old things pass away. You will not do the things you used to do because you are not the person you used to be. Well, that kind of preaching leads to people doubting their salvation because the truth of the matter is this. You're still in a body of flesh. You're still tempted by sin, and even the best of us still give into it. And so when you hear a message that says you're a new creature, you won't sin anymore. You won't be the person you once were. The days you fall, you say, wow, I must not be saved. And you'll get saved again. You can only be saved once, but in your head you think you've got to be saved again. And you will follow that pattern over and over and over again. What's the damage done to a Christian who never moves from the decision of salvation and keeps repeating that same decision. The damage is they don't grow. And their lack of growth affects their family. And their lack of growth affects their friends. And their lack of growth affects their church. And their lack of growth affects God's glory. And their lack of growth affects themselves. Because when you don't grow, you are like a little child. (laughs) And when you don't grow, you are like a leaf blown around in the wind, tossed back and forth by every different type of doctrine. And you will not grow when you do not have a solid assurance that you are saved, that is locked in, you're going to heaven, let's grow from here. This verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, is not stating that as a new creature, you will never sin again. This verse is not even stating that you won't sin like you did before. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans gets very transparent, and he says, I currently do things that I wish I did not. And he says, I currently don't do things that I wish I did. Currently, right now, in the present. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. Oh, yes, Christians sin. And oh, yes, Christians sin big. This idea of new creature doesn't mean perfect you won't attain that till you get to heaven. It does mean something. And we're going to find out this morning what God's word is telling us. So let's take a look now at the beginning again, verse 11 of this particular passage. I have three points this morning. The gospel's persuasion, the gospel's power, and the gospel's purpose. Let's go to verses 11 through 13 and let's see the gospel's persuasion. Because as we saw in verse 21, this text is talking about the gospel. This text is referring to Christ, his death on the cross, the sinless one taking our sin so we could wear and put on the righteousness of God. That is the thrust of this text. The gospel's persuasion, verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. I I already went in depth on that portion of Scripture. How we as Christians recognize there is a terrible side to God's judgment. And we as believers should not want anyone to take that path of terror. 
So let me ask you, what are you doing to keep your children from that path of terror? What are you doing to keep your spouse from that path of terror? What are you doing to keep your friends, your family, your neighbors from that path of terror? Well, I love them. That's good. But love doesn't save. Christ saves. It's good to love them. You need to love them. Christ says to love them. Christ says the greatest commandment is to love. Christ says the way they'll know you're my follower is by love. But at some point, that love needs to take them to Christ. Because if you just love them, all you did is love them to the terror of hell. Eternally, what good did that do them? No, love them to the Savior. How do you do that? Well, at some point, there has to be a conversation, doesn't there? At some point, there has to be a persuasion. Verse 11 Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That doesn't mean manipulate. It doesn't mean twist their arm and force them to church. It means you have conversations with them that cause them to reconsider what they used to believe and compare and contrast what they believe to the truth of Scripture. And that reconsideration, that persuasion, will lead for many to repentance. Letter A, the gospel offers mankind the only path to salvation. Christian, why are you so scared about telling people the only answer to their sin? The only answer to their problem. No, no, don't ever tell them your religion works, my religion works, we all get to the same place. That's a lie. Don't tell them, well, there's many paths to God. That's a lie. Don't tell them that your church, you do your thing, it'll all work out. That's a lie. Don't tell them that, hey, hey, you know, God sees the good in you. God will be okay with the good in you. You'll make it to heaven. That's a lie. Stop letting the world persuade you of lies and then repeating those lies and stand up and be the salt and light and start persuading the world of truth. Blows my mind how quickly Christians are persuaded by lies. Drives me crazy how quickly teenagers and young adults are persuaded by the culture constantly changing. What the culture believes today, they didn't believe 20 years ago. The culture doesn't know what they believe. They constantly change. And anyone who changes their truth by the culture doesn't know truth. They will change it lately every one to two years. There are things politicians are saying today they would not have said three years ago. Things like, what do you think a woman is? Oh, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. What are you talking about? What is wrong with you? That is a new phenomenon in our culture. We're now a Supreme Court justice nominee can't even define what a woman is. And Christian, you want that culture and that definition of truth to persuade you, to persuade your children, that's chaos. Stand up and persuade them. But if you're constantly back on, am I saved, am I saved, am I persuaded, you'll never persuade anyone. And Satan has achieved victory in keeping you from getting in the fight. Get in the fight. Recognize what salvation is, move on from that, and start growing and start persuading. There's only one path to, Christ, uh, to, to, to God, the Father, for eternity. His name is Christ. Letter B. Those who fail to act on their beliefs will surely create what? Can you guess? Unbelievers. <laughs> and, now, you may not create them. You'll surely sustain them. <laughs> they won't become believers. If you say you believe something and don't act on it, you're just going to... Convince them to continue unbelieving. 
how many people I have talked to who have said, I don't go to church, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Basically what they are saying, I've lost count, by the way. I, I can't remember how many times I've heard that phrase. And I'll tell you what they're basically saying. We go to church, and the people don't even follow what they claim to believe. Why would I believe that? They make a valid point. Why would they believe that? This world, this community, this church needs Christians who believe it and live what they believe. Sincerely. Verse 11. We persuade men, but we are made manifest. We show it unto God, first and foremost, for God's sake. And I also, and I trust also, are made manifest. We show it in your consciences, for your sake. Verse 12, we commend not ourselves again unto you. We don't do it to get your approval. We do it to give you an occasion to say, now that's sincere Christianity right there. And to glorify God, verse 12 that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance, which are the hypocrites, and to say, no, 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 there is sincere Christianity in the world. Let me show you. I pity the community, and I'm not going to say I know of any. I, I, I can't think of one, but I'm sure they're out there, communities in America and abroad, who have churches but no sincere churches, who have churches full of hypocrites, who a community who can't say that's what a Christian really looks like. They can't claim that. Let that never be said for Meriden. And let that never be said about Meriden Hills Baptist Church. We need to be the real deal. Otherwise, what are we doing? Why are we here? We're playing a game, and the game is only hurting people. Because those who don't act out their beliefs are just going to create more unbelievers. And I've said this many times. I'm going to say it again. The ones who are most likely to be affected by a church who says one thing and does it different, are the children in the church. Why are so many children growing up and walking away from the church? Not just the world. That's not the problem. It was the world they grew up in, their church. And they saw the church for what it was. They were not impressed, and they walked away. A bunch of Christians who said one thing and did something different. The gospel's persuasion is found in Christ first and foremost, but the gospel's persuasion is offered through Christians. God uses Christians to give the gospel. And if you can't persuade them with what you do, you won't persuade them with what you say. Letter C, the followers of Christ will be judged irrational by those who reject Christ. Verse 13, for whether we be beside ourselves. I told you that phrase means crazy. The world's going to think you're crazy. The world's going to think you're irrational. Don't be shocked when it happens. Prepare yourself. Ready your mind for that conversation. When you talk to them about Christ, literally their eyes roll in the back of their head. Their eyebrows raise, and that's when they're being polite. Then they start stepping over the line of politeness and start telling you what they think. Be ready for that. I watched a video some years ago as a youth pastor. I was preparing for a message on evangelism. So I watched a video on YouTube of a young teen boy who went to Washington, D.C. to evangelize with his youth group. This boy was, was sorely unprepared for this task. Probably the boy is about 15 years old. So he's going to Washington, D.C. with his youth group as a mission trip. Someone recorded this video, put it on YouTube, and the boy is surrounded by young adult men, 20 to 25-year-old men, surrounded. This poor kid, I really felt bad for him. He was not prepared. I don't know what that youth pastor was thinking and why he let him wander off on his own to be surrounded by adult young men who just tore into this kid. He's trying to witness, 
And the, he's trying to give them the gospel, and these young adult men are just being cruel. It's not even like, no, you're wrong, walking away. They're trying to tear him up, and they succeeded. So they, they just brought up verses that this kid wasn't prepared to respond to. They brought up uh, uh, morality issues this kid wasn't, wasn't, didn't have the answer to. And they finally stated, so do you believe in that kind of God, of, of this kind of morality? Here's what the, what the people did. The, the young adults took verses, changed the context, and redefined morality, and then attached it to God and said, is that the God you serve? Well, the kid wasn't old enough, experienced enough, had his mind about him to be able to say, whoa, whoa. No, you changed the definition. That's not the God I serve. You changed it. He didn't say that. Essentially, down the end, he said, you know what? If that's the case, maybe I don't believe. He's there to evangelize, and these guys in the space of 20 minutes basically got this kid to reject his own faith. <laughs> what a shame. I don't know what happened. That was the only video. I, didn't, I, I don't know this kid. I hope that his youth pastor got him straight and he grew up a little bit. But look, that's a common story. Christians are so scared of being attacked by the world, they, they lose their mind and they literally do go crazy, the anxiety, and they can't think straight. And they actually say things against truth because they weren't solidly, uh, had a solid foundation on truth to respond. Except the fact the world hates God, hates the truth of the Bible, and will hate those who bring it to them. Be ready for that and give it to them in love. And there will be some that will say, wow, actually I'm interested. Many will say, you're crazy. Be okay with that. If you're crazy, be crazy for God. That's what the Apostle Paul said. All right, the gospel's persuasion. Number two, the gospel's power. Verses 14 through 17. For the love of Christ constraineth us. That word constrain, unusual word. It has the idea of kind of putting you in a boundary, kind of gathering you together, but not in a manipulative or bondage way, not like a slave, like putting you in shackles. More so like a, a coach who's about to play, uh, start the game, getting the team together and say, all right, uh, here's the boundaries. You know, basketball guys, don't go out of the boundaries. Stay in the boundaries. Let's stay together as a team. Here's our play. Here's what we're going to do. Constraining the team towards unity, constraining the team towards a purpose, towards a goal, towards an objective. The coach isn't tying the players down to the seats. Who benefits from that? No, the coach is saying, you got to play within these set of rules. you got to play in these boundaries. Let's get out there and win. Some Christians think the Christian life has no boundaries. <laughs> they think that there are no rules to Christianity, that you make your own rules. You can't tell me what to do. I won't tell you what to do. Let's all just do our best, whatever we think, and hope it works out for good. No, we're constrained. There are boundaries. There are rules. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 14, and essentially, what keeps us in these boundaries? I love this. God doesn't keep us in the boundaries by terror, the terror we saw in verse 11. No, that terror is attached to the unsaved, and it's our job to persuade them from terror to salvation. God doesn't want to keep you in the boundaries by terror. Isn't it a shame that so many pastors, spiritual leaders, don't get that truth? And they want to terrorize you to stay in the boundaries. And you didn't come to church, and they terrorize you. And, and, and you came to church but didn't act a certain way, and they terrorize you. And, and you didn't do or give what they thought, and they terrorize you. And they use a whip to keep you in line. That is not how we are kept constrained in the boundaries by God, not through terror. Some think it's through obligation, some sense of duty. There are pastors who will not terrorize you, but they will constantly manipulate you with words like responsibility and obligation and duty. And they will, they will keep you in the boundaries by some sense of moral obligation to where you need to be and what you need to be. 
Oh, you weren't here? Oh, brother. Oh, sister. You know you should have been. Oh, you should have done that. I mean, you know I still love you, but you should have been here. You know, we miss you. You should have done the right thing. And it's always should have, would have, could have. An obligation. That's not how God constrains us. That's not how God keeps us in a healthy uh, mindset of unity and success. What is it? What's the word that God uses to constrain us? Can you see it? Love. It's love. Just like I described how some people see God is how some parents rule their family. Some parents keep their kids in line purely by terror. If you don't, this will happen immediately, and you will not like it. It is terror. Kids are terrorized into doing what they, their parents think are best. I'll tell you what will happen. When those kids are 18 or before, they will break free, and some of them never come back, and others only come back when they've grown much older and in their heads can handle you, and they'll come back. You have terrorized them to the point where they will run away from you. Parents, if you are running your family by terror, do not think you are godly. I don't see that in Scripture. I see the opposite. You're wrong. Stop ruling your kids with terror. You are emotionally damaging them. You are spiritually damaging them. And you say, well, that's the only way to keep them in line. No, it isn't. You believed a lie, and your kids are suffering because of it. It is the easiest way to keep them in line, and you've chosen the easy path, but it's only easy until they're about 12 years old. Once they hit about 12, 13, it's no longer the easiest way, and now you will suffer the consequences for the next six years at least, if not beyond. You chose the easy way, you will pay the consequences for choosing the easy way of ruling by terror. Same with churches and pastors who rule by terror. They chose the easy way, they will suffer the consequences. They will have a church who will eventually run from them, and you can't blame them. And then there are those parents who raise their kids by obligation. Honor your family. Honor yourself. Honor your mother and your father. There are pastors who rule by obligation. Bring honor to your God. Bring honor to your family. Bring honor to this church. Obligation. I don't want to throw any culture under the bus, but I can tell you if you know history and if you know cultures, Cultures who make honor the most important thing are cultures with some of the highest suicide rates. Do some research. Some of the highest depression, rates of depression. That cultures who attach honor to the most you can do, the best you can do, are cultures who are putting boulders on the shoulders of children who cannot handle it, and it will crush them. And these kids seem perfect on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. Literally, they want to die because they're already dead. How dare you, parent, burden your child with such weight they cannot bear? Well, that's a godly thing to do. We should honor God, and yet that's not how God constrains us. It's not through obligation or honor. It's love. Why don't more parents choose love to constrain their children? Because it is the hardest one to use. But it brings the most reward. And the result, the result is the strong, confident, loving children that you always wanted to have. But you constrain them by love. The child knows without a doubt you love them. It is evidenced daily in how you treat them. Love does not mean without consequence, without punishment. There is consequence, there is punishment, there is truth, but always in and through love. 
And a church who is constrained by love is a church who walks away ready to do the work of the Lord, not out of obligation, not out of terror, but desiring to do so because they are loved and do love. And that is how God constrains us, by love. Letter A. Those who love God will see ministry as an opportunity, not an obligation. You say, Pastor S., I wonder which one I am. All right. Do you feel obligated to be here today? Was it a responsibility that you fulfilled? Then you're not constrained by love. You're constrained by honor. Are you somehow afraid that if you didn't show up today, your week would not go well? God would punish you. God would judge you. Well, then you're constrained by terror. Did you come today because you love God and you want to be in the presence of his people? Then you're constrained by love. (laughs) I dare you, parents, have conversations with your children and say, why do you do what you do? Do you do what you do because you're afraid? Do you do what you do because you want to honor, or do you do it because you love me, because you love mommy, because you love daddy? Ask them and change some things. Letter B, the gospel is offered equally to all, and when accepted, makes all equal. (laughs) In other passages of Scripture, the Bible says that there is no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, no bond, no slave, uh, no free man, that when God sees the saved, he sees us all equally. God offers the gospel equally to all. Look at verse number 15. And he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. God died for all. And when God saves you, again, verse 17, all share equal reward. We are all saved equally. No one here is saved more or less than someone else. I don't go to a different or better heaven than you, all right? We all get the same heaven, the same Savior, the same Holy Spirit. We all are saved by the same God, and when we're saved, we all join the same family of God. I'm not the older brother. I am a brother to you. You are not the more important sister. You are a sister to me. We are all equally the family of God, equally saved, equally receiving mercy and grace by God. Praise the Lord. God offers salvation equally to all, and when we're saved, we all become equal. I don't care what you look like. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care the style of your clothing. I don't care the length of your hair. I don't care the amount of your facial piercings. I don't care your height. I don't care your weight. I don't care anything about your appearance. I don't care how much money you have or don't have. I don't care which house you live in. I don't care what kind of vehicle you drove here. I ask this question, do you love God? If the answer is yes, then I am your brother. And you are my sister. You are my brother. We are all equal. Those other things the world looks at and the world wants to categorize and the world wants to segregate and the world wants to place us all in what they think is the perfect place for us. And God says, there is no places, there's one place, Christ. And you are all perfectly in Christ when you're saved. And Christ doesn't segregate his children. Letter C. The gospel will not give you a perfect life, but it will give you a new life in service to a perfect God. And now we're at verse 17. If therefore, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
That's the verse that I warned you of. A lot of people misinterpret and cause guilt in your life. It is not saying you will become perfect. It is saying you are given a new opportunity. You're given a new life. You're given a new family, the family of God, the opportunity to serve. Old things are passed away. The sin that once controlled you no longer controls you. It died. But it doesn't mean it doesn't harass you. You will still be harassed by your sin. It will still follow you to the grave, but it is no longer your master. You've been given a new master, a new life, Christ, and our life is in him. A perfect God. I wish I was perfect. I really do. I wish that once I got saved, I never sinned again. It's not going to happen. But now that I'm saved, sin doesn't control me. Number three, the gospel's purpose, verses 18 through 21. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciled uh, has that idea of bringing back or buying back. It means it belonged to you. Maybe it was stolen from you. Maybe it was lost. And now you're going to buy what was originally yours. You're going to buy it back. Christ is going to reconcile and buy back what was once his. Verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto him, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. They're sinners. They deserve sin. They deserve the consequences of sin. But God will not impute. God will not impart. God will not put on the saved what they deserve, consequences of their sin. He will reconcile, buy them back, and give them righteousness, letter A. God's purpose is your redemption. He wants to buy back what has been taken from him. You belong to God. But God is not a slave owner. God is not going to purchase you from the slave block against your will. You determine who your master is. And you decide who will purchase you. You are currently, if you're unsaved, purchased by Satan, the world, your flesh. Christ says, let me pay for your sin. Let me purchase you so I can buy you and place you not as a slave but as a child. It would be the idea of in the 1600s, a godly man walking through town and he sees a slave auction going on in the 1685 in some small town, and he has very little money, but his heart breaks as he sees a young child brought up on the slave block. And this man, with the last of his money, purchases the young child. And, of course, the community thinks, man, he's just got himself a slave, and that little boy's going to serve him. And the young man takes him to home, takes off the shackles, and says, you are my son. Stay with me, and I'll take care of you. And neighbors come by, and that son is out in the fields working because now he's a child working for a father to help bring food to the table for the family. And people say, wow, he sure is a hardworking slave, but that child doesn't see himself as a slave. That child sees himself as a son. And the community is shocked to find five years, ten years later, when that young child is sent to a school. And they say, why are you sending your slave to a school? And the man says, what are you talking about? He's my son. What? He's your son? We've been seeing him work for you for the last ten years. Yeah, as a child, he works for me. Out of his own love, he works for me. Yes, there was work to be done, and who better to do it than a child? My child, my family. But he was never constrained by terror. 
the boundaries of our property, we're always constraining him by love. He stayed here because I loved him. He stayed here because he loved me. And now as an adult, I'm sending him off to take my love somewhere else. That is the story of the gospel. We are slaves to sin in our state of uh, of sin and, and unsaved. But when we are saved, God doesn't buy us to slavery. God buys us to family. And then says, stay here and I will love you. Serve me and I will love you. Letter B. The gospel cannot force your salvation. You must accept it. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now when we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul says, we are praying that you'll make the right decision. We are praying that you will allow God to purchase you through salvation and that you will serve him as a child. We're praying that you'll make that decision, which means it is your decision to make. God will not force you, but God will allow you. God will offer you. And let her see and we're done. The gospel will not make you perfect, but it will cover you with Christ's perfection. And we're now ending how I started this morning. Verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When you get saved, you don't become sinless. When you get saved, you are given a robe of sinlessness that you put on over your sin so that God, when he sees you, sees the sin of, uh, the sinlessness of Christ, redeems you, buys you back, reconciles you, and now you have the perfection of Christ overwhelming you. Unfortunately, the perfection of Christ, the sinlessness, the righteousness of Christ will always fight against your own sin until you die. But when you die, that battle is finished. Christ wins and you are raised again at that point in perfection and only with the sinless righteousness of Christ on you. And your sin stays in the ground with your imperfect Nasty, decomposed, dead body. Praise the Lord. When you die, your sin stays behind. And that sinless robe given to you, that's all you take to heaven. That only. Everything else is left behind, both the good and the bad. The only thing you're taking to heaven is that sinless robe. So, Christian, you're a new creation. Do you know it? Do you live it? Are you manifesting? Are you illustrating? Are you showing others, not just what you say, but what you do, that they can look at you and say, I believe because of what I see? You say, well, faith isn't seeing. Some people need a little sight to get to that point of faith. And if God wants to use me for that, I'm ready. Here I am. For those who think I'm crazy, that's for God's glory. For those who want to listen, I'm ready to speak. How about it, believer? Are you ready to show the world what a new creature looks like? Let's pray.